Here at Lady Farmer, we talk about so many different aspects of slow and sustainable living, a subject matter that can at times feel confusing, overwhelming, even misleading. And that's why a few years ago, we set out to write a book that might be a guide for those seeking a life of beauty, simplicity, and sustainability. We're thrilled to be able to offer you our own small guide for cultivating slow living, sustainable simplicity close to home available in our online marketplace. In the book, you've woven an easy-to-digest narrative of stories, recipes, tips, resources, ideas, and reflection. This collection of essays and resources will guide you to think about your own relationship to the planet, what you eat, what you wear, and how you live a sustainable lifestyle. It also contains a 21-day slow-living challenge of daily thought exercises to lead you in the process. For you Good Dirt listeners, we are offering free shipping of this wonderful little book with the code THEGOODDIRT in our online marketplace. So use the code THEGOODDIRT, T-H-E-G-O-O-D-D-I-R-T at checkout when you go to purchase your copy of The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living in our online marketplace for free shipping. That's The Good Dirt at The Lady Farmer online marketplace for free shipping on The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks, everybody. If I could wave a magic wand and change something about environmentalism, it's the shaming that goes on around it. I feel like we need to be a lot more generous with each other about how hard it is to make sense of the world and and operate in a way that introduces that feeling of connectivity into our lives. I'm very passionate about looking for places to enrich connectivity wherever I can, both in human relationships as well as in my relationship with nature. You're listening to The Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty-gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Emma and Mary Kingsley, the mother-daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Welcome, everyone, to The Good Dirt. So on the day this episode goes live, it will be during some major faith celebrations in our culture. It's Good Friday of Holy Week and the Christian observance of Easter, which is this coming Sunday. And we're also in the middle of the Jewish Passover celebration, which started on April 5th this year. And we're also in the middle of Ramadan, the Muslim holy month of fasting. So yeah, Emma, what's what's blooming for you right now? Well, I'm in Washington, D.C., and at the time of this recording, it is currently the peak cherry blossom blooming, which is actually much earlier than it usually is. I'm not sure what concurrence of events led to that because it's been warm and cold and freezing and warm again, but usually they bloom a few weeks later than they are blooming right now. So that's exciting. They're really beautiful. 
you're a few miles from the National Mall in downtown Washington. Are the cherry blossoms around you blooming at the same time? Oh, definitely. The cherry blossoms around me are definitely blooming. I just haven't seen the difference with the ones down at the mall. is just that there's a lot all together in a very concentrated space. And it's pretty striking to see it all together. As you get farther away from the mall, there's still cherry blossom trees around, but they're, you know, they're not as bunched up together. Yeah, it's really, really a beautiful sight, this phenomenon in our nation's capital. It truly is an amazing thing. So what about you? What's happening? What's blooming for you? Oh, things are really getting started in the garden. Things are really greening up. Those little tiny shoots that appeared a few weeks ago are now turning into clumps. (laughs) There are lots of blossoms on the fruit trees. We have peaches and plums and pears. And we have this very old pear tree in the front yard. We think it dates back to the 1800s. And it's blooming like crazy. And I'm so happy because last year it did not bear fruit. So I was afraid that maybe it was on its way out, but it's looking great this year. Usually it's just dripping with pears. And last year there was like not a single one. I think some fruit trees do that. But anyway, I hope this old gal is still in the game. I'm, I'm rooting for her. And my flax seeds are coming up. We're doing a flax growing experiment here in our Chesapeake fiber shed. Let's see, what else? All kinds of things going on. I have some plans this year to do things very differently. I'm going to be doing a lot less mowing. I'm going to be very conscious of planting more natives. I've always been conscious of pollinators and creating habitat, but I'm really stepping that up. We also have the monthly gardening forum that is hosted by you in the Almanac, which is our online membership community that started a couple of weeks ago. And we're hoping to do that every month or as often as people want it to be. Right, Mom? Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Oh, yes. I'm so excited about the gardening forum. I want this to be a member-directed group where the people that come determine what we're going to discuss and format and so forth. We're looking forward to having people from all different regions coming in and telling us about what they've got going on in their gardening life, their efforts to grow things. We're going to talk a lot about what we can do in our own gardens for climate resolution, for soil enhancement, for growing your own food. So I am really, really excited about this. And right now we're saying it's once a month, but if members want to meet more than once a month, I'm all in. I'm there for whatever people want. And we just want to facilitate learning and sharing in community and bringing beauty and joy into our lives through the magical act of working with the land. We have a lot of really exciting things happening in the Almanac. We have a paper making workshop coming up. We have a fermenting Skillshare. We're doing plant dyeing this summer. We do book clubs every quarter. And we have an Artist Way group that's just about to wrap up. We've been working through the book, The Artist Way, together. It's been so fun. Enrollment in the Almanac is open now. And we'd love to have you join us for the spring season. So if you'd like to learn more, go to ladyfarmer.com slash community. The Almanac is a beautiful extension of this podcast and this community. If online communities aren't your thing, there is also a way to support the podcast by joining a podcast supporter level 
which is only $11 a month. So we'd love to have you. Either way, we really appreciate your support in keeping the podcast going. So moving on to today's episode, we have Michael Osborne, the host of Generation Anthropocene, which is another great podcast. Yes, Generation Anthropocene is a science podcast featuring stories and conversations about planetary change. And here's a quote from the About section on the website. The Anthropocene is a statement. Humanity is a geologic force reshaping the Earth's surface. We are on par with ice ages and tectonic plates. But who or what is really in control? What are the limits of our power as a species or as a society? How did we get here? And what are the forces that will shape this humbling and awe-inspiring new geologic age? Michael Osborne, our guest today, co-created Generation Anthropocene in 2012 with Miles Treyer as a response to the environmental crisis. And since then, he has continued to teach science communication courses at Stanford while hosting and producing the podcast, as well as other podcasts. He also has a podcast called Raw Data and Famous and Gravy, and he'll tell you about that in our conversation. Mike holds a PhD in geochemistry from Stanford, a BS in geology from UT Austin, and a BA in criminology from UM Missoula. This was one of those zoomed out conversations where we got to talk about some really big questions with a really smart guy. And if you're wondering, so what is the Anthropocene and what does it have to do with the good dirt? Then stick around. This was not only fun and fascinating, but it will leave you wanting to know more about how humans are shaping the future of life on the planet. So here's Michael Osborne from Generation Anthropocene. My name is Michael Osborne. I am an audio producer and consultant based in Austin, Texas. I started a podcast about 12 years ago when I was working on a PhD at Stanford. The podcast is called Generation Anthropocene, and it's been going off and on for the last 10 or 12 years, something like that. So I'm a refugee from academia. Once upon a time, I was a research scientist, but then when I discovered podcasting, I fell head over heels in love with it. And I have been both a creator, a producer, and a consultant for about the last 10 years. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) So concise. So we're here today to talk about Generation Anthropocene and the conversations you've had around this topic of the Anthropocene and thinking that for our listeners, you can just tell us what it is and help people get their head around that. I think it's a term I would say that people are beginning to hear more and more, but might not quite get what it's referring to. Oh, 100%. That if I could go back 12 years, I'm not 100% sure I would name my show after a new geologic age because every time I tell somebody about the show, I have to go through the same spiel about what the Anthropocene is. It's a provocative and really cool idea. The way I usually describe it to people is I say the geologic timetable, the Jurassic and Pleistocene and so forth. There's an idea out there in the earth sciences that we've entered a new geologic age based on the global footprint of humankind. So the way to think about this is imagine you could travel a million years into the future and look back into the rock record. What would you see? What would be the stratigraphic geochemical paleontological evidence that 
humankind was here and changed Earth's surface geology. And one of the things that's really cool about that idea, or at least big about it, is that at first you think climate change, right? But it's really so much more than that. It's biodiversity loss. You know, animals that were here before are no longer here. It's also more domesticated livestock. So once upon a time, there were more elephant, zebra, and horse bones, and now we have, or elephant, zebra, and giraffe bones, and now we have more cow, chicken, and pig bones. It's also ocean acidification, that ocean acidification being change in sedimentation in the ocean. It's urbanization. It is the proliferation of nuclear isotopes because of nuclear bombs. It is deforestation. It's all these things, all broadly speaking, encompass the environmental crisis we face today. So that's like the physical evidence or argument around the Anthropocene. I think what I also really like about it too, and really have liked about it from the get-go, is that it is also a metaphor. It's also, there's something, it's the idea that humanity has become a geologic force. And that is scary. It's provocative. It is, it's a story about the world, about how once upon a time, things were one thing, but now humans have become like gods. What does that mean? What is our power? Is it appropriate to say humanity has become a geologic force in a physical earth sense, as well as in a sort of storytelling sense? That's the idea with the Anthropocene, and that's been motivating driving force from the show from the get-go. I think what I'm taking away from what you just said is this is actually way beyond the buzzword of climate change. And in, in terms of like common, common understanding, cultural language, things that, that catch on that are in the cultural consciousness right now, I feel climate change is huge. But as you just summed up there in such a great way, it's about so much more than that. And so that's what we're here to talk about today. And I'm really excited about it. And I've listened to several episodes of your podcast. And oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just, I'm very fascinated by the topic. And just wondering for you personally, what's an aha moment if you had one when you said, wow, this is such an interesting topic. I want to do something about it or a place where your life shifted in the direction of what you're doing now. And what point did you start delving into this topic so deeply? I can point to two or three key moments where, where I, that really changed things for me. I think the first was in college when I was first introduced to the geologic timetable. I went out of my way to avoid science cl classes as an undergraduate. I was just scared to death that I was gonna suck at anything math or science related. And then at some point somebody said, you should just take rocks for jocks, geology 101, super <laughs> easy, not a problem. I was like, all right, rocks for jocks, sounds great. I wasn't a jock, but whatever. I took geology 101 and I fell head over heels in love with it. Totally caught me off guard. It was every lecture, I just felt like there were these big ideas being introduced. You know, day one was dinosaurs and day two was oil and day three volcanoes and then tectonics and all this like big earth stuff. And then uh, hovering over all of that was the geologic timetable, which for me is a little bit, thinking about geologic time is a little bit like gazing into the stars. There's something incomprehensible about it and humbling about it. Occasionally you have these little glimpses where you feel like you're able to 
really internalize the depth of the geologic past. And you're like, wow, it's just so much time. So the first time I met <laughs> the geologic timetable was an aha moment in a way. Also in college, I had my first class on climate change. This was around 1999 or so. So I think part of what brought me to... So I fell in love with geology. I ended up getting into paleoclimate. That's a fancy word, but all it means is climates of the past. So the idea with paleoclimate is you want to understand what are the natural beats and natural cycles in the Earth climate system so that we can understand what we're doing on top of that today. I guess the reason I wanted to mention paleoclimate is because th there's, there is this sort of deep time Earth history perspective that I don't feel like is represented enough in the conversations around climate change today. The problem is not that the Earth is warming. The Earth is always warmed, it's always cooled. We go through these cycles. The problem is that it's warming fast. And you really only understand what fast means if you have a deep time perspective of what the Earth does in terms of its normal cycles. So. The first time I heard the term Anthropocene, there was a, I must have heard it before this, but the first time I engaged with it, there was an e Economist article, came out 2010 or 11, something like that, Welcome to the Anthropocene. And I remember the article laying out a little bit what I laid out a minute ago, all these different, it's not just climate change, it's biodiversity loss, it's ocean acidification, urbanization, and so forth. I remember the first time I saw that, I was like, this is the word that captures that sense of geologic time that in a way helps helps pr provide the context for why climate scientists today are so alarmed about climate change and about global warming. Yeah, the first time I read that article, I really locked in. I think the other thing I would point to is podcasts. <laughs> I got really into podcasts very early on like 2005 early on, really when they just hit the scene. And really ever since, I've always been an, an audiophile. I just love the medium. I've heard people say, audio is the theater of the mind. It is the medium where I feel like there is such opportunity for imagination and expansiveness. It is the medium to blow your mind if you are out there wanting to have your mind blown. The other, th the, another thing I've heard about audio is that it carries the most freight. There's just a lot of density of information and experience and richness within it. So all of those things came together for me when I started Generation Anthropocene, the sense of geologic time, a term that captures climate change, but other forces and phenomena that describe the environmental crisis. And then audio. Audio is this medium where some of this might be able to be captured and communicated. That's so fascinating. And in this multimedia age where everybody is just assaulted with sensory input all the time. Yeah. Do you think the audio aspect of the, has a particular powerful impact or more powerful impact on its own? Is that what you mean? I, I do. Yeah. yeah. I think that for me, audio is, and this is, I think, part of the reason podcasts have become so popular, audio's defining quality is intimacy, intimacy and authenticity, that when people connect with a show or with a host, they feel like they are with a friend, with a trusted source. There's something about the human ear that can detect bullshit. And there's also, I've heard it described this way. If you think about reading as a, it's a completely active process, you have to read the words and form a picture in your mind, and it's all on the reader to do all the work. Video is in 
stark contrast to that. Video, all the information is being fed to you. It's visual and audio information. It's just passive. Audio is somewhere in between where you have to do some of the work to get there, but you're also being provided with a stream of dense information in a conversation or in a story. And there's something about that relationship or that contract that I think has people really enthusiastic about, you know, why audio is so great. And it gets back to the theater of the mind thing. If part of the challenge with climate or the environmental crisis more broadly is helping people to imagine the scale of what is happening, then I feel like you've got to build that theater. And I feel like audio is the medium with which to build that theater if it's done in an authentic and honest way. Wow, that's really great. Do I sound like I'm full of shit when I say that? (laughs) No, I love that. I really feel that way about that. It it kind of answers a question to me sometimes. I wonder, wow, what is it about the podcast that's so captivating? For some people, not everybody enjoys them as much as some people. I feel like there's a core group out there that just eat it up. And what is that attraction? And you just put that so well. So anyway, thank you for that. So I guess going back a couple steps to climate change and geologic time. And now you're here in this podcasting space, exploring all of those things. How would you describe where you are at this moment in time with all that? Like, what do you think about climate change? Are we going to make it? (laughs) Yeah. I will say that question has been something that we've been wrestling with on the show from the outset. How appropriate is the apocalyptic narrative that surrounds climate change? Are we screwed? Are we screwed? And what does that mean? I think that I get very frustrated by some of the communication around climate that ends in a sort of, if we don't do this, it's all going to be over, or that's it, folks. Because I feel like what we're doing when we have these sentences that end in this sort of big, ambiguous sense of despair is playing on fears that, that point to an uncertain and very scary future without describing what that future is or could be. And I think it's really hard because I do think that the consequences of runaway climate change are severe, and I think we're committed to a certain amount of that already. At the same time, I feel like there's a real dangerous message that we can send. One thing that I've heard the term weaponized despair used recently, that I feel like one of the risks of weighing in too much with it's all over or it's all going to end story is that you render people inactive and you render people desperate and hopeless. And at the same time, you don't want to tell a Pollyannish story that's not true, that it's all going to work out and everything's going to be fine. I don't know that I have a clean resolution to that problem. I think that I don't think planet Earth is going to spontaneously combust into some giant asteroid belt by the end of the century. So I think that there will be people and there will be life and there will be a way of life. I also do think that the Earth in the future is going to look very different from the Earth today. How to plan for that and what that's going to feel like in a human experience kind of way? I don't know. I don't know that we've ever been able to generalize about any of that ever before. And I think I wouldn't dare to try in a way. I guess one thing to make this a little bit less abstract, I do feel like a historical problem with environmentalism is misanthropy. People suck. That's the problem. We're cockroaches with shoes. If it weren't for us, then then planet Earth would be humming along just beautifully. and, And the problem is all these damn people. 
I reject that point of view. I think one of the things that I've really come to over the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years is that I'm ultimately a humanist. And I believe as much in the human experience and human rights as I do about environmental equality and environmental sustainability and so forth. So I, that's been a long-term project of Generation Anthropocene is to not have a point of view that assumes people suck because I don't think that's right, fair, or helpful. So along those lines, to bring it down, I guess, to a little more concrete level, when yeah. we're all talking about, you know, we got to save the earth, are we really talking about saving ourselves? And the earth has been around all these billions of years and has always adapted to all these changes and different inhabitants. And won't the earth adapt as it has since the very beginning, whether or not the humans continue to live here? In other words, can we just all rest easy knowing that we will live out our allotted lifetimes in whatever scenario, but the earth, as you said, is not going to combust and fly off. <laughs> yeah, probably not. I don't know. Yeah. But hopefully not anyway. I guess let me back up a little bit. One of the things that brought me to the earth sciences in the first place, one of the reasons I ended up getting an earth sciences PhD and starting Generation Anthropocene is that it was born out of an environmental ethic that I grew up as somebody who really likes to be outside as often as possible. There's Never a outdoor sport I met that I didn't enjoy on some level. And the wilderness experience is essential to me. I know that is an experience that's born out of privilege, but the ability to connect with nature and whatever that means is sacred to me. It's not even sort of sacred. It's absolutely sacred to me. It's unquestionably sacred to me. I think that one of the things that kind of hovers around the conversation of climate change in the Anthropocene is... Are we still going to be able to do that if we are forever altering the fate of life on Earth, if we are setting the rules for life going forward, what kind of connection can we have with nature? Are we inevitably alienated from it? And I think to your question, Mary, about saving ourselves and saving people, one thing that I've really, I don't know, grown into is that I do think it starts, I mean, what's really interesting to me or really important to me anyway, is, is battling through feelings of alienation and separateness everywhere in my life, both from nature, but also from other people. I think that a lot of the problems of the world are born out of tribalism and born out of a sense that we don't have that much in common with each other and we don't have that much of an intimate relationship with the earth. And I think that everything I'm trying to do as an audio producer is meant to address those feelings of alienation and separateness. I think it's hard because we all drive in our cars and live in box houses and have our own little micro environments built by humankind. So it's hard to feel like we are an, uh, an animal like any other animal on the planet. But I, but certainly that's what the science says. So all of this is to say that one of the things I'm very, I don't know, passionate about is looking for places to enrich connectivity wherever I can, both in human relationships as well as in my relationship with nature. Do you think that um, that this alienation and disconnection stems from our separation with nature from from the very from so many thousands of years ago? And on some level, humans decided that they didn't really have to go by the rules of nature, that they were somehow apart from that. Do you think that's where our personal sense of isolation and separation comes from or is just one aspect of it? I don't know. I don't know. I think that. Look, we are a remarkable species, obviously. And I do think that a lot of that boils down to our 
ability to be a storytelling organism. That most organisms are restricted in terms of information they can pass along in generations by what they can pass along genetically. Yes, there are plenty of examples of parents who teach their offspring certain survival techniques and so forth, but nothing like what we do. Our ability to have accumulated information generation to generation is what gives us arguably geologic power. And how do we tell stories? First, we started by oral storytelling, and then we figured out how to write stuff down. And now we figured out how to send messages across the planet instantaneously. And now we're all staring at our screens. But we are obsessed with stories. That's how we're hardwired. And I do think that part of the feeling we're dealing with today in terms of alienation is about trying to keep up with the story of our of ourselves. I don't know if that made any sense. I feel like I just talked myself into yeah. a corner there, but do you know well, what I'm trying to get at? Yeah. One, to follow up that idea, I would add to that, this thing about humans as storytellers that sets apart, I think, humans as problem solvers has mm. taken us so far down this road because we're, we are such an ingenious species. We're constantly solving problems to make things better for us. And so eventually all these thousands of years down the road, we're looking for solutions to our solutions. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Sometimes I feel like a lot of our problems stem from the inability to correctly like box in what is inside the problem and what is outside the problem. For every solution we come up to, we seem to have unintended consequences and adverse effects. And are we defining problems correctly in the stories we tell about what those problems are and what the priorities are? Overall, I mean, to to answer your question earlier about alienation, I do think that there is, at least for me, an intuitive sense that, that some of it's driven by a materialistic lifestyle, that caring about things and, and objects more than, I don't know, more than the biology and ecology and geology that surrounds us. Overall, that that sort of, I know just as an individual, the more materialistic I feel, the more alienated I feel. And I think a lot of us are caught up in that. And I don't know, it's really an important point to me to go back to what I was saying earlier about misanthropy and the sort of, I don't know, problem in environmentalism of saying people are the problem. I feel like we can also get really judgmental about that too, because we're all caught up in this artificial materialist materialistic civilization. It's the rules of the world. It's the cultures that we were brought into. And one thing, if I could wave a magic wand and change something about environmentalism is the shaming that goes on around it. I feel like we need to be a lot more generous with each other about how hard it is to make sense of the world and and operate in a way that introduces that feeling of connectivity into our lives. Yeah, that's definitely something that we try to do on the good dirt offer a different perspective. I think a lot of people want to have the conversation, but feel like, or they want to learn more about it, but they feel like they can't without feeling shamed or guilted into something. And so then it's just easier to not have that conversation, which is also not helpful. So yeah. Got to be a middle ground here somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I really like what you are saying about materialism and your personal experience leading to that alienation feeling. And that's something else that lives in the undercurrent of so many things we talk about on this show. A lot of times we just get to capitalism. That's the problem. It's yeah. all, that's kind of all like roads the, lead to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I guess I kind of, I would be interested in pulling that apart a little bit if you're game and something that I think about a lot is 
what if it's not like, what if that's not the main problem or what if, because obviously sitting here and talking about how bad it is and blaming everything on it, that's like not doing anything. That doesn't do anything to turn around the, the conversation kind of stops. You know? yeah, and yeah. so I guess I'm interested in, and there's this whole like leg of the movement that's like social capitalism and like yeah. social business and like capitalism for good. And like, I also am really skeptical about that. And just, I wonder your thoughts about that. And is there any hope there or any rabbit hole that hasn't been explored as much that we could go down? And from where we are today, are there actual like choices we could be doing differently or ways that we could be engaging in the economy that would actually be different? So I heard a couple of things in that question. One is this sort of question about individual level responsibility versus organizational responsibility, organizations being governments, companies, institutions, and so forth. I don't have a clear way of thinking about this. I do know that personally, I do try and make some efforts to monitor my own behavior because I want to live a life that is consistent with my values. And that mm -hmm. does mean... I'm not a vegetarian, but I do try and watch what kind of meat I eat and where I get it from. I do hop on airplanes, but I try not to do it too much or unnecessarily. Mm -hmm. I do watch how much I drive, but I still have a truck. Mm -hmm. And all of these things, you could call them hypocritical. And I think they matter. And I think that we've everybody's got to think about their own individual behavior. I also don't think that we're going to solve the problems of climate or anything else with just having consumers change behavior. I think that we need policies, we need laws, we need regulations in order to bend the CO2 curve. I also would say that for me, not just climate change, but all of the other large-scale environmental issues that, that we're confronting, whether it's how we grow our food or a biodiversity loss or deforestation or whatever it is, they all to me seem to me to be symptomatic of a piece. That, that I, my personal feeling on <laughs> the nature of humanity is that <laughs> evil emerges from evil systems. I think that everybody thinks they're a good person in their own story, and we're all responding to availability opportunities within a system, and that the project of building a civil civilization is one where incentives are monitored and have checks and balances. I think that's the idea of a well-functioning democracy, which is a whole other conversation. Anyway, I'm, I guess all of this is to say that for me, the environmental issues we face are downstream of bigger problems in terms of how we organize society, including like how we organize markets. And I'm, I don't have better ideas for how we create prosperity and innovation without wrecking the planet and letting greed just run amok and run loose. But I do think that one of the things I care a lot about is is it's not even that I care a lot about it. One of the things I do think about a lot, though, is, is how we design systems of governance so that we're not accidentally optimizing for really shitty behavior. Because again, I think the environmental problems are largely symptomatic. They're not the root cause. I'd say that climate change, huge deal. I care a lot about it. We need to deal with it this century. But if we suddenly have nuclear fusion in five years and are able to bend the CO2 curve, I don't think the Anthropocene goes anywhere. I think that we are still living in an age where humanity is a geologic force setting the rules for life on Earth. And, and so I don't think it's just a sort of market failure 
problem. I think it's a bigger question of, I don't know, how we organize as a species. Now, how to do that, I don't have the first. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's about to be like, and tell us. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it, 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 I have the same issue where so many conversations end and they're like, ergo, capitalism is the problem. Yeah, um, yeah. And I don't want to just end it there, right? It's, oh, what do you do with that next? And mm -hmm. I think that there are good reasons to believe that there are pieces of modern capitalism that work well, that we do want human ingenuity and innovation and a system that, you know, rewards people who come up with good ideas. I think that how to check those good ideas and share them widely, that's the bigger, more complicated governance level stuff that I don't know what the hell to do about. But that's where that goes for me. Speaking of systems and the economy and so forth, are you familiar with that book, The Good Ancestor? It's yeah, yeah, yeah. very interesting exploration of how our behavior now and the present defines or looks out for or plans for futures mm. beyond our own lives. Or how we do not do that and how... We need to learn to do that. So it's about intergenerational empathy. Yeah, exactly. And one of his one of the things he he talks about in the very beginning is this concept of marshmallow thinking versus acorn thinking. Mm. And the marshmallow thinking stems from this experiment you've probably heard about where very briefly you, they would place a marshmallow in front of a five-year-old child and tell the child that I'll be back in 10 minutes. And if that marshmallow is still there, then you get another marshmallow. Yeah. And most kids eat the marshmallow. They don't wait. And so that's an example of marshmallow thinking as opposed to acorn thinking in mm. which if you have the, the presence of mind or the gift of looking into the future, you, you can plant an acorn, this very tiny thing that grows into this giant thing that hosts all sorts of life and goes for many human lifetimes. So in, in the time since you've been doing this, since you've been immersed in this topic, have you perceived more of an awareness and understanding of these issues? and Or do you see more of a persistence in the collective marshmallow thinking versus some growing acorn thinking? Yeah, that's interesting because I think that the sort of marshmallow versus acorn, because I want to read this book now, because I do think that one of the things that's very hard to deal with is just how wired we are for short-term gratification, yeah. which is what marshmallows are all about. Yeah. And the goal of life of planting a tree whose shade you'll never experience has a kind of a spiritual richness and ambition to it. But how do you feel that in the moment when you're digging the hole and planting the acorn? I think that, and I think that's just a sort of problem of the human psyche. And there's not a whole hell of a lot we can do about it in a sense. Same time, it gets back to what I was saying earlier about using our imagination both to imagine the distant past, but also to imagine the distant future, or maybe even not so distant future. If, as I guess I'm arguing, one of the problems of climate change is that there's a message of weaponized despair. For me, I think has a real clear consequences to the younger generation. There's a lot of people, and just to offer one very specific example, there's a lot of people in their 20s and 30s who are now saying, I'm not going to have kids because of climate change. That is a statement about there's not going to be a future worth living in, and it would be immoral to bring kids into it. I can understand the reasoning there, and I don't want to judge anybody for it, but I guess my point is that message has a real clear mental health consequence. I don't think climate change is the only thing dri driving the mental health crisis, but I think it's part of it. So I do feel like if you want to feel good about planting those acorns, you got to imagine what that tree is going to look like. And you have to spend some time thinking about how do people feel rewarded 
for the world they're building. To some extent, I have seen a shift in the 10 plus years I've been running Generation Anthropocene, certainly in terms of awareness of environmental issues. When I got into it in the early 20 teens, there was still a very vocal political opposition saying this isn't happening. I think that message has diminished. You will still encounter nihilists, but more and more, the message is more like it's happening, but it's not that big of a deal, or it's not as big of a deal as some environmentalists make it out to be. And reality's caught up with us in so many ways. We see the natural disasters, the extreme weather events, the consequences of climate change more and more, which I got to say, that has surprised me. I didn't know that people were ever going to get to a place where they are linking the day's events with this long-term phenomenon of climate change. I had thought that those two things were always going to be disconnected. So in some sense, I think that there has been a kind of success in terms of raising awareness of certainly climate, even environmental issues more broadly. I think the harder problem now is to paint a picture of a future that we're all excited about that does have a like a vision of the environment attached to it that's not necessarily absent the human fingerprint. Let me tell you about what it's like to drift to sleep on a 100% natural wool pillow sourced from regenerative farms wrapped in a lovingly handmade organic cotton pillowcase. Oh wait, I can't. I think it's just something you're going to have to try for yourself. Holy Lamb Organics is proud to carry on a centuries-old tradition of making beautiful textile products by hand. Combining heritage methods with pristine natural and organic materials and sustainable business practices, they bring a dedication to healthy living and the environment. Everything Holy Lamb does reflects their devotion to the planet and its inhabitants. From their supply chain to their manufacturing processes to their facilities management, nothing happens without considering the environmental impact. Most importantly, they're also dedicated to fair labor practices, secure working conditions, diversity, and inclusion. From the farm to the mill to their partner manufacturers, everyone shares the same high ideals of a safe, respectful workplace and environmentally conscious methods. Making good products enables them to do good work. Every time we order something from Holy Lamb Organics, we're proud to support a small town made in America company. You can find Holy Lamb Organics in the Lady Farmer Marketplace. For additional marketplace discounts, you can join the Almanac, our member-supported community platform. Find Holy Lamb Organics products including pillows, sheets, natural wool comforters, and more in the bedding section of the Lady Farmer Marketplace at www.ladyfarmer.com. One of the things... The implications of the Anthropocene is that there is now no square inch on the planet Earth that hasn't, in some sense, been altered by humankind to some degree. Now, that exists along a spectrum. There are places where the Earth has been completely torn up, and there are places that have warmed or cooled or whatever, just a little bit. But I think it's important because so much of environmental thought had been built around this fantasy that nature is out there and we're in here. And anytime we go out there, we are visitors to something that we don't have any kind of implication in. And that's just not true. And that's not true in the Anthropocene. So to get back to what I was saying, I think the idea of creating an aspirational future, one that we want to live in, where the complexities of nature and of life are celebrated and conserved and managed 
but where that hasn't lost any sort of intrinsic spiritual value. I think that's one of the things that's one of the projects for this generation. You talk about how there's no place on earth during the Anthropocene where where humans haven't impacted the natural world. And personally, I find that very sad that in my own lifetime, I haven't been able to experience that untouched wildness or wilderness. I know there's places where you can go where, you know, pretty close, but it's all touched. Even the, the, yeah. the highest point on the planet, they're detecting microplastics in the air. And yeah. you can go out the furthest place in the Pacific Ocean and there's plastic islands and this sort of thing. And it, it's a great sadness for me that I have to deal with. And and I'm, I don't know where I'm going with that, but I will. I will... Let me hop in and say I feel the yeah. same way. I feel like part of part of where we're at is that we have to be honest about grief and the fact that we are grieving a planet that has been forever changed. And I think about that a lot with younger people I work with. And I think a lot about that with my kids. What I worry about is saying, and it's going to suck, (laughs) right? Like there, there's this real risk to me of it gets back to the weaponized despair thing. The idea that there was a wild, untouched nature was largely a fantasy. It's always been a fantasy, and it's one that we're committed to. And to say, Mary, I guess what I'm trying to say is I relate because I feel like I'm grieving a story that was really important to me about what it means to have an immersive wilderness experience and to connect with nature. But I think part of what we're supposed to do now is find new ways to connect that maybe are not as tethered to the idea that it has to happen on an untouched earth because that's not possible and maybe that's not necessary. But I'm sad too. I'm sad too. Yeah, I think it's very profound. And I think it's something... It's, it's something that's probably pretty pervasive in the shadow of our collective psyche that's is untouched and unrecognized. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I know that I can relate when we moved, we moved to Georgia in the early to mid nineties. And that was during a big building boom phase in, in Northern Atlanta suburbs. And we moved out to this, it was a new suburb. So there were still a lot of wooded areas and farmlands and stuff all around us when we first got out there. But almost by the week, <laughs> we saw it all come down, like right in front of our eyes, great big giant trees and huge swaths of open land turned into housing developments. And this is just the way it was. And my children were really young then. And I look back on that time and I think that was just very sad But there wasn't a place to express that sadness because at the time there was no sensibility that there was really anything wrong with that. They were making space for people and all these people were moving to down south and there were new jobs and wasn't it great? And the economy was just booming and it was dot com and there was a celebration about it. And you have all these conveniences around you and all these great shopping centers and these wonderful big grocery stores. And isn't this all wonderful? But I guess what I'm trying to say is to me, there was a huge layer of sadness around it. And I don't think I was the only one. It was just like there was nowhere to express it. 100%. I think that, look, one of the, I think the problems about sort of tie it back to mental health or to sense of alienation is we're not very good at building time for reflection and reflective spaces. We're not good at setting our screens down. We're not good at disconnecting from the ins and outs of of this frenetic life that we're all caught up in. Nature is a sanctuary for that. It's not necessarily we go there to observe, although I 
we should. It's also we go there to get away. And you lose an ecosystem, you lose a landscape, you see where once there was a forest, there's now a strip mall, and that forest is not coming back, at least not in our lifetimes. Yeah, you're right, grief goes along with that. And I do think that the need for that kind of like building out of reflective space and time is in a way never been more urgent. That the sense of, use the word frenetic second ago, the frenetic pace of life. I mean, that's also kind of bottled up in this idea of the Anthropocene. We had this phrase early on where we used to say history is accelerating, which sometimes it feels like that. The events of the world are just moving at a lightning speed in a way that we can't keep up on, keep up with. But I also think that this is the other value of the wilderness experience is what you see when you're there, what it means to slow down and observe and turn your gaze outward. So much of the feeling of loneliness and alienation that underlies the mental health crisis is built on unhealthy egos who are obsessed with our own self-narratives and our own self-stories. And that one of the things you get when you connect with nature in a meaningful way is a break from that storyteller in the brain on steroids. And all right, 30 years from now, the world looks a lot different. It's a lot hotter. A lot of species have gone extinct. Does that mean that kind of wilderness immersive experience is no longer possible? I think it's different if we compare it to today, but it's no less valuable. I'm not trying to make an argument for more or less conservation or more or less because one of the things that I don't I just don't like to be prescriptive about anything. I'm pretty good at I'm okay at talking about the problems of the world. I am no damn good at solving them. But I do think the way we think about this is fundamentally flawed. That when we imagine 50 years from now, we take current circumstances and project it forward and skip over all that time. And it doesn't really speak to the what it will feel like to live 50 years from now. I think that's important from this sort of intergenerational empathy perspective, that if you want to have empathy for future generations, it is also about recognizing fundamental truths of the human condition that are always going to be with us, whatever the temperature of the planet is. Yeah. So speaking of intergenerational, you're a parent. So where do you fall into this feeling about your child's future beyond your own? Where do you land between hope and despair on that? And you've said a little, you've spoken to that a little bit, but when you get really personal, your kids. I'm all all over the goddamn place on it. I'm neurotic as hell. I'm scared. Of course I'm scared. I worry about the world they're going to inherit. I do think a lot about, am I as a father trying to model behavior that will give them the tools they need for whatever the earth looks like and whatever the world is that they come into. And I think that does mean getting back to what I was saying a second ago about building out reflective spaces. You look, my salute, every time the kids are bouncing off the walls, going crazy and spastic, my solution is, okay, we're going outside. It's amazing how many problems, okay, we're going outside, seems to solve when you're a father. I try and get them dirty and try and get them out camping as much as possible and hiking and splashing around the streams and all that. And I feel like, because I want them to know that they're like, that is an important tool for how you make sense of the world around you. I also think that, I don't know, the world is screwed up today, but the world's (laughs) always been screwed up. I don't know that the problems we're facing while they're at a scale and severity that that feel new and different vis-a-vis the Anthropocene. 
I don't know if that's right or not. I think every generation has had their end of the world story that they've had to deal with. And so there's a part of me that doesn't want them to internalize the weight of the world too much. But I don't know. It's a daily battle. I don't have a North Star in how I'm thinking about this. Other than I just don't want to drop too much heavy shit on there on them and say, go figure it out, because that doesn't seem fair. I also, one other piece, I don't want to say the story, give them the story that once upon that time, the earth was an awesome place yeah. and you missed it. I don't want to rob them of, of an aspirational future because I don't know. And I think that requires a level of humility. Oh, that's so true. I often reflect back, oh, wouldn't it be cool to just beam up during the time of the Lewis and Clark expedition? Sometimes I just fantasize about that. You're talking about the flux capacitor, which is what makes time travel possible. Yeah. Like North America before the Westerners came through. Yeah. I've read about their journey and their adventures, and they were so surrounded by life, by wildlife. And it was like nothing for them to go out and get food for the entire expedition. And I've read a statistic that those guys were working so hard they ate about five pounds of meat a day or whatever. And yeah. and it was easily yeah, accessible uh, and it was there and it was surrounding them and they recorded so much of it. But And then you hear about the carrier pigeons and the sky being just clouded with these birds. And, yeah. and it, there is a sense of, oh, I missed it. But to I, your, yeah. I feel that way about the Pleistocene exp- <laughs> extinction of megafauna. I wanted to, I wish I could have seen the saber-toothed tigers and the North American horse and the giant ground Yeah, Nostalgia is a trap that yeah. way. I don't know. And that's, I guess that's my point is that I do worry about the trappings yeah. of nostalgia. I don't, I don't want to say it's not important, but not I productive. feel like there is something, or there's something risky about leaning into yeah. it a little too much. Even Lewis and Clark, okay, it looks awesome, but there's freaking grizzly bears out there that want to eat you. <laughs> All of pain and joy are all relative to whatever environmental and sociological context you're operating within. So if I get too married to a version of the world that's anchored in the past and that's not possible to go back to, then I'm sending the wrong message. It's very tempting, though. I really do have to police that in myself and as a father all the time and talk about like how things are not supposed to be. Yeah, and I think it's much more productive and healthy for oneself and all surrounding beings in life to just observe and appreciate what is here. That's where good things are going to happen. When you really fall in love with, with our natural world, that's when you start to develop a deep communion with it. it, That's going to spread. And that I think is the ultimate thing that's going to turn it around. Just people actually being in love with it. So connected with it that they wouldn't do anything to hurt it. 100%. Rooted in the present. It's not about what it was or what it's going to be. This is why mindfulness is so important. This is why I think so many environmentalists graduate gravitate towards Buddhism and Eastern thought and having meditative practice that is anchored in today. If I'm fretting about what the world used to be or what it's going to be like, then I am not in the present. True. And the more I'm in the present, the more I'm on the beam and pay attention to the right things. I think that's a great segue. So we ha- consider all of that presence and mindfulness At Lady Farmer and on The Good Dirt, we talk about slow living. I guess we're curious to hear your perspective, Michael, on slow living and what that means to you and how and if and how you're able to practice it in your own life. Yeah, I'm neurotic as hell if that hadn't come through. So I am am okay at it. I do 
older I get, the more I really do feel like I work to try and be as present as I can. Recognizing like that's not easy. There, there is this thing called the ego in our brains that is telling a story. And to tell a story, you're looking at the past and you're looking at the future. And it, I cannot quiet that thing. I cannot silence that inner voice, that storyteller. But the more I pay attention to it with meditation, the more it slows down and the less power it has. One of my things I'm very proud of myself for in terms of COVID habits is during COVID, I started doing 10 minutes of yoga every morning. And it's an important daily ritual for me now, not because I want to have great flexibility or I still can't touch my toes, but what it does do for me is has me connect with my body every morning and just start off by paying attention to literally what's inside. I also am very intentional about making sure I create opportunities to disconnect from society and have a wilderness experience. That may be a short hike on a Saturday afternoon, or that may be weeks of backpacking or canoeing and camping. That the If I want to live slow, then I really do have to get out of the city. I do have to get away from this thing called civilization that I'm all caught up in all the time. I applaud the fact that you guys are really trying to push the idea of slow living because it's weird how much fast living seems to come from the outside in, how much fast living infiltrates daily routines. This was really true with quarantine and COVID. I was in the city during lockdown and it was incredible how slow it all felt. And then as soon as things started picking up again, no matter how committed my family and I were to having a slower life, it seemed like we were just subservient to some other pace. So I don't know. I know I care about it. I know it's important. I try to introduce it into my life where I can. I tried, I tr I'd say one other thing about it is I try not to have too much self-judgment, that the more I engage in self-criticism, the more I feel like I'm, I don't know, introducing overactive cells into a hyper state where I get fidgety and I can't sit straight. So we, we try to talk about that a lot on here, how you have to give yourself a lot of grace in this because we are surrounded by a lot of competition for our time and awareness and attention and all that. Can I add one other thing to this? The real way I slow down, and this is not this does not come easy, but is to ask myself, and I have to be conscious about this, who needs my help today and how can I help them? Maybe it's my children, maybe it's my wife, maybe it's my brother, maybe it's my sister, maybe it's my nephews and nieces, maybe it's my colleagues, maybe it's my neighbors. The more I'm not thinking about me, the more helpful I am to somebody, the better I feel about myself and, and the more I slow down. What happens when I get myself into, you know, the better version of me, the more help, helpful version of me is I create opportunity for gratitude to flow in. And I feel like I'm, I feel better about who I am. That's hard because that ego I keep talking about is mostly consumed with selfishness and self-centeredness. But if I'm able to step back and ask the question, who can I be helpful today? the slower I feel and better I feel. Can't argue with that ever. So before we get to our last question that we always ask, I want you to give you the opportunity to talk about some of your other projects. And yeah, and yeah, so go for it. And how do they relate to the good dirt if they do? 
The project I am most obsessed with these days is my new podcast, Famous and Gravy, a conversation about quality of life, one dead celebrity at a time. It's a pop culture show. And throughout the conversation, I feel like one of the things that I really care a lot about is, is connectivity overall and how we connect with nature, but also how we connect with people. And for me, pop culture has always been this very useful language for finding similarities with other people in my life. One of the reasons I am dedicated to following the NFL is that I need to be able to talk football with some guys if we have very different political opinions. But if we can find a common language around football, then it's amazing what kind of connectivity and conversations we can have. And that actually tends to be true with pop culture overall, TV, movies, music, and so on. So the idea on every episode is that we ask the question, would you want this life? And it, there's a theory of celebrity, like when people become famous, it's almost like social Darwinism. They're selected for certain traits. Maybe they're very attractive. Maybe they're really funny or smart or powerful, or they have other qualities where we as a society put them up on a pedestal. And they're almost fictional characters at that point. So when they're dead and their story is complete, it's worth asking, would you want that life? So it is a, it's a light listen. It's mostly pop culture trivia fun, but it is meant to get out exactly what you were talking about a second ago, Emma, the human condition. What do we want out of life? What is a choice that we can make? How much agency do we have in our lives to change our careers or change our relationships or do better? So it's a show about dead celebrities. It's really about us. So that's Famous and Gravy. Apart from that, the, the other thing I do with my time is I help people produce and grow podcasts. So people come to me and say either I have an idea for a show, want to get it off the ground, or I have an existing show and I'd like to level up and make it an even better show. And so I consult on both production and marketing. So that's my day to day, which is really fun because as I was talking about earlier. What does the good dirt mean to you? I love this question. I tried to give it some thought leading into this. So I had a soil sciences class when I was getting my PhD and I hear dirt and I think soil. One of the things, and which was a actually fascinating class, like it was so much cooler than I would have thought. A lot of my research was in geochemistry. So I am intimately familiar with the periodic table and never put together in my mind, oh, the soil in any given place is going to be a function of the surrounding geology and the history of weathering in that place. That soils are, and dirt, are a combination of rocks, weather, and life. Like literal life, like biodiversity life. I, I had somebody in an interview in Generation Anthropocene once say that the the envelope of biodiversity around planet Earth is really thin. You go too far up in the atmosphere and there's not much life. And you go too far into the ground or under the ocean and there's not much life. There is this thin envelope where all of the biodiversity exists. And, and it exists there because of, because of the geology, because of the sunlight, the weathering, and the rocks. I hear good dirt and I feel like it is this sort of like intermediate substrate that connects the rocks, the climate, and life. And what does it mean for it to be good? I don't know. I think that's up to us, right? I think it's up to what we make of that soil. There's a literal idea there that it's good for growing things, but there's like the Anthropocene, I hope, a kind of 
metaphorical idea of this is a place where we develop and, and grow our values and hopefully an aspirational future. We love that question. People come up with so many different answers. And so thank you very much. I think that was a great one. Good answer. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for asking it. It was fun to think about. Yeah. As we wrap up here, is there anything that you'd like to leave with our listeners? I do think that to the extent that your audience is interested in an issue surrounding sustainability and environmental health, I think it is a really healthy thing to think very broadly about what those goals mean inside and outside of the human experience. That it's not just taking a snapshot of what is nature today. It's also taking a snapshot of what are my relationships today? How am I connecting with people? And what is the whole picture? There's a sort of bigger, broader way, I think, of environmental health that's not just about the physical planet Earth. It's also about the social and cultural conditions we create. All of that for me is inside the Anthropocene. Yeah, I agree. If we aren't happy and invested and plugged into our lives now, how are we supposed to care at all and do anything? Yeah, and in each other's lives. Yeah. I think it's the way that things are intertwined. This is the like grand lesson of ecology and, and really human and environmental systems is everything is connected in ways that we'll never be able to disentangle. So it's all of a piece. Interdependence. Yeah, exactly. That's the word. Fascinating topic. I love this. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, you guys. This was, it was really fun to talk about a lot of this stuff and congratulations on everything you're doing. It's a great show. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in, calling in, and spreading the good dirt. You can reach our listener voicemail at 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. You can find this number in our show notes and in the link in our Instagram profile. This show is produced by Lady Farmer with original music composed and performed by John Kingsley. Our technical partner for this series is Citizen Racecar. Post-production by Alex Brower and Jose Miguel Baez, coordinated by Gabriela Montequim. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at WeAreLadyFarmer. That's WeAreLadyFarmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt.